This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, January 30th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. The National Weather Service is placing the region under a winter weather advisory until 6 Wednesday morning. In east central and northeast Oklahoma and northwest Arkansas, there is an expectation of a mix of patchy freezing drizzle today, tonight, tomorrow, with possible sleet accumulations of up to a half inch and ice accumulations of up to one-tenth of an inch temperatures aren't expected to get above freezing again until Wednesday afternoon. And it's scheduled to be all about northwest Arkansas at the state capitol tonight, though the weather may change that. The annual Northwest Arkansas Chambers Night Out at the Capitol is an annual opportunity for residents here to discuss issues of importance with lawmakers. Chambers of Commerce in the region scheduled to be at the Capitol to meet with legislators and elected officials. But with anything, you should, in the next 48 hours, you should call ahead and make sure it's still happening. Here's what ha- is happening ahead this hour on our show. Why a longtime Rogers business, Daisy BB Guns, is called that. Daisy is the focus of this week's archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. That's in about 15 minutes. Before that, in 2005, a team of federal and state wildlife scientists confirmed the existence of a lone male ivory-billed woodpecker in the big woods of eastern Arkansas. The giant woodpecker had not been sighted for more than 60 years and was considered to be extinct. But subsequent searches to document a viable ivory-billed population in Arkansas and other places yielded only scant evidence. Now, U.S. Fish and Wildlife officials are deciding whether to finally declare the species extinct. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. Black and white film clips captured in 1935 of a nesting pair of giant ivory-billed woodpeckers in a remote Louisiana cypress swamp can be viewed on Cornell Lab of Ornithology's All About Birds portal. Several rare audio clips are also posted. John Fitzpatrick, a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology, former executive director of Cornell Lab, housed at Cornell University. Back in 2004, Fitzpatrick was part of a scientific year-long expedition led by Cornell Lab and the Nature Conservancy to document new evidence of ivory-billed woodpeckers after a bird was spotted in the big woods of eastern Arkansas. So the ivory-billed woodpecker never was common, and uh, during its uh, late 19th century and early 20th century uh, period was declared extinct several different times, uh, and then rediscovered in this uh, famous uh, small population in Louisiana, uh, which was studied carefully in the late 30s and 40s, after which no absolutely unequivocal records in the U.S. uh, occurred. And in 2004, we became aware of a uh, the possibility that a bird existed, um, sent some people down there. Fitzpatrick says the search was kept secret to keep the public impressed from swarming the big woods, a swampy bottomland hardwood forest along Arkansas's lower White River. Over a course of about a year, we've documented seven different instances in which individuals got, uh, experienced individuals got good enough looks at this bird to uh, attest that there was one individual flying around out there in the big woods of Arkansas. Expedition findings were published a year later in the journal Science. Fitzpatrick is the article's lead author. 
during that period, there were lots of uh, headlines calling this bird Lazarus, you know, back from the dead and so on. And I kept saying, this is not a bird back from the dead. This is like one of the world's most endangered birds. Black and white feathered ivory-billed woodpeckers can measure up to 20 inches long with a 30-inch wingspan. They have pale ivory-colored bills and piercing yellow eyes. Males display a striking red crest. Pre-settlement ivory-billed woodpeckers inhabited virgin forests as far north as Appalachia to the higher elevations of the Ozarks bioregion as well as on the eastern Great Plains. The striking birds were hunted by tribes and later European collectors. Constant intrusions and deforestation drove flocks to find refuge in increasingly remote and inaccessible southern swampland habitat exactly where the Cornell and Nature Conservancy team hoped to locate breeding pairs. So we stopped investing in it formally in about 2007, 2008. Since then, a number of individuals have actually continued to look in the most logical places, uh, and in particular, uh, from Arkansas South into Louisiana, there's been a lot of attention. But as I regularly say, nobody yet has captured the image that would appear on the cover of Time magazine. And uh, as a consequence, there's a lot of doubt about this bird continuing to exist because if it exists, we should be able to get a picture. Today, ivory build woodpecker enthusiasts continue this search on foot and in kayaks using video drones and camera trappings, some yielding distant fleeting images of large flapping birds. Images of woodpeckers that have varying levels of approximation to ivory-billed woodpecker, some of them actually looking quite interesting. But again, nobody has snapped that shot that uh, is indisputable. If a viable population of ivory-billed woodpeckers had been documented in the big woods of Arkansas, Fitzpatrick says, the national recovery team might very well still be in place. What I want to make sure that uh, everybody understands is this bird may be extinct. There is a possibility that it doesn't exist. Uh, and the uh, idea that uh, we declare it extinct is, is placing a period, an exclamation point on that when it's actually not completely sure. In the autumn of 2021, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed removing ivory-billed woodpeckers from its list of endangered and threatened species, declaring it extinct. Several public comment periods were scheduled, as well as a virtual public hearing last January. I'd like to welcome you to the public hearing for the proposed rule to delist the ivory-billed woodpecker. Arkansas resident and Big Woods Research Expedition member David Luneau captured a short video of an ivory bill flying away from his kayak in April 2004 on Bio DeVue. He spoke against delisting. In 2004, Gene Sparling observed an ivory bill in eastern Arkansas, starting a search effort that led to sightings by 15 different people, most of whom were trained field ornithologists and some of whom would be considered woodpecker experts. Some of the 15 observers were skeptical about the presence of an ivory bill until they saw it. After all, they had read in some field guides that the ivory bill was extinct. But others, like independent bird researcher Ezra Hodge, says it's time. There's been no evidence at all in the past 60 plus years, and all arguments that have been presented 
are either based on sentimental values, non-conclusive data, or the ar argument that the habitat won't be protected if the ivory bill woodpecker is delisted. Alan Mueller also spoke, the retired U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Arkansas Field Office Supervisor, who later served as the Nature Conservancy's Arkansas Field Office ivory-billed woodpecker specialist, agreed to be interviewed. He says he's seen the bird. Yes, I did. I was lucky enough to get to see it in uh, 2007 on uh, Mike Free's Watonsaw Wildlife Management Area, which is a state property owned by the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. That was in the big woods 10 miles west of Brinkley, Arkansas, a town made famous by the search. It's a spot where we had been having uh, signs, which is uh, calls and knocks on the trees and things that we thought there probably was something going on there. And I saw the bird flying. Mueller is certain a remnant population of ivory-billed woodpeckers exist. Yes, we've got uh, about 500,000 acres of forest in the big woods in Arkansas. And that is a tremendously large area. Despite this effort to go out there and cover it, there's no way we covered all of it. Mission Ivory Bill, a popular grassroots project based in Louisiana, co-founded by Matt Cortman, has coordinated lots of field searches for the bird. This is Cortman commenting at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service public hearing about recording ivory bills in 2017 and 2018. And then in 2019, I saw ivory bills on two occasions, one on February uh, 18, 2019, and a pair on uh, March 10, 2019. I have no doubt about the identifications, and I've seen an ivory bill as recently as last November. It was November 20. Anyhow, what's really frustrating about this is the disparity. Those of us who claim we've seen ivory bills, we never get a fair hearing. And I appreciate that y'all have allowed this hearing. Amy Trahan, a fish and wildlife biologist with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, works in the Endangered Species Program. She's part of the team sorting through evidence to decide the federal protection fate for the ivory-billed woodpecker. We did a five-year status, species status review um, and that was completed in 2019. And based on that review, uh, it was recommended to delist a species due to extinction. Several public comment periods were scheduled in 2021 and 2022. In the Federal Register, U.S. Fish and Wildlife cites the publication of the proposed rule to delist the ivory-billed woodpecker yielded substantial disagreement among experts regarding the interpretation of the evidence that exists, as well as significant disagreement regarding whether the species is extinct. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service states that possible sightings of the ivory-billed woodpecker are either inconclusive or misidentifications of the common pileated woodpecker, which is much smaller but has very similar features. Still, since the coordinated search in the big woods back in 2004, certain actions have been taken, Trahan says, to protect the bird if it does persist. Yes. Um, so since that time, um, there have been lands that have been acquired by different refuges in our refuge system. There have also been programs within Fish and Wildlife Service, such as our partners program that have worked with uh, private landowners to restore and protect habitat 
for the species. Um, other federal agencies such as the NRCS, um, they have programs that they have done similar um, things with private landowners. Uh, so there, there have been like many things like that that have gone on. If U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decides to delist the ivory-billed woodpecker due to extinction and federal protections will end, what would be the consequences? Those areas will continue to support other federally listed species and or state listed species, um, which are going to continue to be protected. Um, and also any lands that were acquired for the conservation of the ivory bill will continue to be under protection. We asked Trahan why the ivory-billed woodpecker continues to attract such a large flock of followers. I mean, it comes with the nickname for the bird. It, you know, it was the Lord God bird. People would see it and go, Lord God, you know, that they, they were just amazed by it because it was so large. And it was just such an interesting looking bird. And the habitats that you can find it in were beautiful and untouched and hard to get, you know, hard to get in there and see. But so I think people just love it. It's, it's a beautiful, charismatic species. And by some, referred to as ghost bird. A final ruling by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to declare the ivory-billed woodpecker extinct is expected this spring. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. song Lord God Bird, written by Suchan Stevens, there performed by Coach Kit. This is Ozarks at Large. The initial public showing of renderings of the first tribally operated addiction treatment center for the Cherokee Nation, scheduled for tomorrow afternoon in Tahlequah. The $18 million, 17,000 square foot treatment center will be built using the tribe's millions in opioid settlement funds. Construction scheduled to begin later this year. Plans include the main treatment center along with separate dormitories for men and women. The development will also include cultural amenities for residents such as stickball fields, basketball courts, and marbles courts. KUAF is giving you a chance to win one of five pairs of tickets to see Beck with French indie pop band Phoenix at the Walmart Amp for one night only, Friday, August 18th. Enter to win at KUAF.com. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of activities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus outdoor spaces, including access to city trails. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more.
Tomorrow on our show, school vouchers. Probably some of our students who have some language deficiency, and, and over half of our students are ELL students, then very few of them will leave because same situation. Nobody will provide those kind of services. Plus, creating books for young readers with a diverse cast of characters. Four authors and illustrators from across the country will be at the Rogers Public Library this weekend to talk about representation on book pages. We have a preview tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. You can also keep up to date with all the stories we broadcast on Ozarks at Large by subscribing to our free Ozarks at Large email newsletter. You can sign up at KUAF.com. There it is. The holy grail of Christmas gifts, the Red Ryder 200-shot range model air rifle. This is Ozarks at Large. It's a Monday. It's time for Randy Dixon to bring in some archives and history. He's with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Say it with me, Kyle. You'll put your eye out. Or you'll shoot your eye out. I think it's the actual Ah. line. But, uh, yeah, that's from A Christmas Story. Which is a movie that is... Literally run 24 hours a day, I think, on Christmas Day on TNT or TBS. Since 1983 when it came out. It's a great movie. A great movie. And one of the um, the, part of the spine of the movie is that our main protagonist wants to receive a Daisy BB gun for Christmas. And his mother is worried that it's too dangerous. Yes, specifically a Red Rider. Specifically a Red Rider. With the compass in in the stock. And we'll talk about why it's called Red Rider. A little bit today. Right. Well, and the reason we're doing this, and, you know, they keep talking about Red Rider, Red Rider, Red Rider throughout the movie, but when you watch that scene when he's looking in the window mm-hmm. of the toy store, when the camera pans over and, and you see the gun, the, the sign actually says Daisy. Right. Red Rider. So it is a Daisy uh, air gun or BB gun, whatever you want to call it, but... They're made here in northwest Arkansas, Rogers, to be specific. Yeah. So we wanted to look into the story behind uh, the legend, I guess. Yes. So uh, it dates back to 1882. The the, the gun itself or the the, the company. The company. Right. Um, And it was actually based in Plymouth. Uh, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. Makes sense, because in the late 19th century, Detroit was hopping with manufacturing. Right. Automobiles about to come around. Yep. Yep. Uh, Steel. Right. Metals. Um, But this company, the Plymouth Iron Windmill Company, made metal iron windmills. Oh. That's the name. (laughs) Um, And one day... One of the employees came in, and he had been tinkering with this air rifle. This That he was wood. making? Well, someone else had made it. They okay. had made it of wood. I see. And this guy says, I can do better than that and, and make it because we make metal. Mm-hmm. And so he brought it to the president, who was a guy named Lewis Huff. And he... Uh, showed it to him, they loaded it up and took it out back, and he shot it, and um, he loved it. And he made this exclamation Ah. that, well, Joe Murphy, who uh, is with the Daisy Museum, 
explains here that it was a common expression at the time that gave it its name. Anyway, we've all had these little colloquialisms we use for superiority of things, but the saying in 1888, that's when this is, was, it's a daisy. And it simply means it's a good one, it's a great one. And I've had people challenge that and say, do you mean it's a doozy? But it's a doozy came along when the Duesenberg car became popular. So that was way forward in the future. This is, it's a daisy, and there are recordings of it as early as 1880. So we know that's what they said. Now, as anything that's that old, there's at least two recordings of it all through the Huff family. They've said, boy, it's a daisy, or Clarence, it's a daisy. But the it's a daisy part stuck. So for people who said, the, did you name the gun after a flower? Was it the founder's wife's name, something like that? No, it was just the saying. So the first guns out there that were made actually are embossed on that top cocking lever, uh, Plymouth Iron Windmill Co., Plymouth Mish, because we used to use four letters for states, patent applied for Daisy. And Daisy was just the name of the gun, not the name of the company. That's Joe Murphy from a conversation you had with him at the Daisy Museum that's in downtown Rogers. Right. All right, I want to tell you something. This is one of my favorite pieces you've ever brought in because I learned four things in about one minute from Joe Murphy. This guy's a wealth of information. First, I learned why Daisy guns are called Daisy. Yeah. Well, and if you remember the movie Tombstone, mm-hmm. uh, Val Kilmer who played Doc Holliday, mm-hmm. there were several times in there he'll say... It's a daisy. Yep, or you'll be a daisy if yes. you do. Yeah. So that was the in 1880. All right. So second okay. thing I learned okay. here is that yeah. daisy is was this exclamation for something that's right. Third, I learned that doozy comes from the Duesenberg automobile. Never knew that. Never knew that. And fourth, that in the late 19th century, we used four letters to abbreviate states. Oh, mish. Yeah, so thank you, Joe Murphy, for four items of information. Well, there's more coming. Okay. Because I talked to him some more. But anyway, we pick it up with they start making these air rifles. Mm -hmm. And they would give them to their windmill salesmen as they would go out. And they were going to sell them for like $2 a piece. But then they also, it was sort of like a value added if, you buy a windmill, we give you a BB gun. Can I just stop you here and tell yeah. you how much I love thinking that somebody once had a job that was windmill salesman? That's, That's just a wonderful job to have. Okay, keep going. Yeah, well, they'd be in there, sure. you know, buckboard wagon. Right, and right. The problem was, you know, most windmills were made out of wood. Mm-hmm. These were made out of iron, and they were hard to transport. Heavy. Yes, and... They were really hard to put together. It would take more than just a family to do it. You you would have to have quite a few people to assemble this thing. A windmill raising, if you will. Yes. Yes. But you'd have to have a lot more people <laughs> right. than a barn raising. Right. So in 1895, they changed the name of the company to Daisy because they just decided not windmills to make windmills. Windmills are out. Yep. yep. It's done. So... They're doing that for quite some time, and then in 1958 is when they made the move to Rogers. Now, I found a 1969 interview in the KETV archives with Cass Huff, who was the grandson of that Lewis Huff who said, It's a Daisy. And um, 
he said, talks about in this interview how they decided to make the move from a suburb of Detroit to northwest Arkansas. People had gotten to a point where they no longer took pride in their jobs and no longer were eager to use an old cliche, give a day's work for a day's pay. And a small business like ours, we have to have that kind of thing. So I began looking all over the country. I was in every state in the union looking for a place to move this business of ours, which is a pretty old business. We'd been there at that time some 70 odd years and it wasn't easy to even think about moving a business. Uh, however, I knew we had to move and after, as I say, going all over the country, Arkansas appealed to me for many reasons. It's uh, climate, it's natural resources, but more particularly, it's people. And I've said many times, there are a lot of states in the union that have good climate, that have a lot of natural resources, but the greatest resource that any state has, and it's here in abundance in Arkansas, is it's people. And I uh, can remember people saying to me, uh, what do the Arkansas people have that other people don't have? And this is an indefinable something, but it all sums up into a a kind of a pride in a job and a pride of belonging to an organization that they have in, in great measure. I don't know what the population of Rogers was in 1958, but I'm going to guess 8, 9, 10, 12,000? Not, Not even that much. Okay. I think it was more like five. Okay. All right. So here they are, daisies coming to they bring us. Well, um, Joe told me that they immediately brought 100 families up, mm. which just was a shot in the arm for the economy of this small town. I imagine. Yeah. So they've got that going for them, and they improved the the airport, the runway, uh, because uh, Cass is a a World War II hero, Mm -hmm. veteran pilot, and um, he he does a lot of flying around the country to do his sales calls, and that is – how he found Rogers, oh landed there, and just fell in love with the area. But let's talk about the Red Rider okay. and how that came about. So I went to the Daisy Museum, and Joe Murphy was really nice, showed me around, and he told me about how the Red Rider came about. Now, at the time that this that this happened, they would find a kid that was outstanding or um, was athletic or well-known and they would name a rifle after him mm-hmm. and this advertising guy comes in and says now what happens if this kid grows up and does something horrible it's forward gonna, thinking that's forward it, thinking yes it's going to reflect badly on the company so he came up with this idea I own the rights to this character, Red Rider, and this comic strip, Red Rider, and we're all in these syndicated newspapers, and we have, you know, um, comic books coming out, and Fred Harmon is the artist, and he's a well-known Western artist, oil painter, beautiful work, but he also draws these comics, and he used to work, uh, he and Disney were uh, working at the same studio together at one time. He's very talented, you know, so he said, why don't you make a Red Rider pistol? This would be 1938, and Daisy didn't make a pistol until 1960, so they didn't have one. But one of the men working in the plant, one of the executives, was a guy named Bob Wesley. Bob goes in the back room, brings out a little carbine rifle, BB gun, and he had taken something and written Red Rider on it, 
kind of like a Red Rider logo, and he goes, how about something like this? Well, within two years, they were making Red Rider BB guns. All right, so Red Rider was, at the time in the comics, yes. maybe not the most popular. It wasn't as popular as Dick Tracy or, or some of these others, but he was a pretty, he was very well known. Yes, and uh, done by an artist who was a well-known, mm-hmm. not cartoonist, mm-hmm. Western artist. Yeah, and I will, if I have, because I'm me, and I sometimes have insomnia, I've gone back and found online many Red Rider strips from the 30s, 40s, or 50s. I've never seen one. They're I need beautiful. to look that They're up. They're beautiful. And wow. so if you, if you ever have time... Well, it, I'm going to do it right after this show. It will sh- remind you that at a, there was a time when comic strips were big yes. and in color, especially on Sunday, of course, mm-hmm. and, and they just held a different place in our popular entertainment world than they do now. And they were gorgeous. Buck oh, Rogers true. was Gordon, Flash Gordon. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. it was our in I, itself. I have read, and, anticip- and in anticipation of this interview, I wanted to confirm this, and I couldn't. But I had read at one point that the Red Rider um, licensing agreement with Daisy BB Guns is the longest continuous fictional character endorsement of a product in U.S. history. Wow. That I didn't know. And the second longest is Popeye with spinach, uh, with which is now owned by Alan Canning, Popeye mm-hmm. Spinach, also based in Arkansas. Yes. What, Alma? Yeah. Yeah. That's I am great. doing a jo- good job of taking us off topic today. I apologize. No, it's fascinating. Uh, I love it's it something. when we go off topic. Yes, okay. <laughs> All right. So All we've, right. T- we've learned about Red Rider. Right. And so I was looking more and more in the archives, and I did come across a feature report from 1984 uh, when Chris Phillips uh, made the trip. And, you know, coming from from Little Rock to do it to do mm-hmm. a story is um, yeah it's a pretty good haul mm-hmm. and so she came up and went into the factory and uh, this is a portion of that report. The family who started this rifle empire more than 100 years ago recently acquired the company back. The now 79-year-old Cass Huff purchased the plant for an undisclosed figure. Years ago, it was windmills and not rifles the family wanted to sell. They just gave away the air guns with windmill purchases. But they ended up building an empire on the shooting recreation. As far as the future is concerned, company executives say some more non-gun products may be manufactured here. But for right now, they're just happy Daisy is back in the hands of the family who started the gun business long ago. Chris Phillips, New Scene 7, Rogers. All right, so that's from the factory. You spent time in the museum yes. recently. Yeah, and I still want to go to the factory. I'd mm-hmm. love to see that. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they make the, the BBs out of these, I think they're 2,000-pound coils of, of wire that they slice up and make into BBs. Oh, my gosh, I've got to see this happen. Yeah. I, I saw the video. I want to see it yeah. first. Maybe we could make a trip up there. I bet we could. We'll beg Joe to there see if go. he'll let us All in. Right. So, walking through the museum, I noticed other 
items that Daisy produced over the years, and Joe explained a, a few of them. Certainly, uh, toy guns dating back to, uh, I want to say, about 1908, maybe even a little earlier than that. They were making, uh, they called them liquid helium pistols. They were water guns is what they were. But they made cork guns and noisemakers and paper poppers and pop guns. And uh, uh, there was a uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century gun that looks like a spaceman's ray guns. And, you know, toy guns used to be fun, and we all grew up with them, people our age. I want to see this science fiction gun. Yeah. I want to see this. Well, what I was surprised about is I looked up, and I'm seeing all these different guns, and then I see a water pistol. Mm-hmm. And so they made everything, you know, like you said, the noisemakers right. and, and that sort of thing. But my next, to me, natural question was, did they ever consider making firearms? And the answer is yes. Then in um, the late 80s, they developed a line of 22 guns called the Legacy. And they're absolutely beautiful guns. They all had octagon barrels. Some of them were wood. Some of them had synthetic stocks on them, but the wood was walnut. They were beautiful guns. And the idea of being your first gun was being a, was having a very inexpensive gun, right? That's your first one. You're not going to spend a lot of money. Instead, by the time they got these guns developed, they had a gun that competed more with a Winchester or a Remington than it did with a Savage or a Stevens, which is where they should have been. They built a Cadillac gun, and they should have been buying a building an entry-level Chevrolet. So uh, the bad news for Daisy was the guns didn't sell that bad because uh, sell that well because they were a higher-priced gun with a Daisy name on it. Yeah. The good news for collectors today is the guns didn't sell that well. So there aren't that many of them out there, and they're considered very collectible, and they are a good little twenty-two. So valuable to have one of those 22s, like he said, collectors. Yeah. Good news for collectors. Yeah. Good news for collectors. And um, this is what really surprised me, is that they manufactured a lot more sophisticated weapon. So in 1987, Daisy made a 50 caliber uh, sniper rifle for Navy SEALs and for NATO forces. Wow. And there's one on display in the museum. I'm going to show an ignorance of firearm knowledge. Mm-hmm. 50 caliber. What pretty is... big. Okay. Yeah, it's big. It's a big okay. shell. And, um, you know, there's there, there are interesting parts to this museum. There's also that I, I see a monitor with uh, Moonwalk. Mm-hmm. And a whole section with all these pictures, and I see a golf ball. Well, um, Alan Shepard, I believe it was Apollo 14, you know, s snuck a golf, a, I think it was a, an iron. Right. Uh, and I, I'm, they knew about it, but uh, he went out and hit a couple of golf balls. Yeah. And one, he hit it like 1,700 feet or something. <laughs> right. But one of them was a Daisy promotional golf ball, and it is up on the moon right now. <laughs> now, you say Daisy promotional. They didn't make the golf ball. No. They just, it just it would be something they would hand out as a— Yeah. Like a— Yeah, like KTV used to have, you know, Paul Eels golf balls. Right, right. But there's a picture, but this says Daisy on it. So the Daisy logo is on the moon. Yes. 
That is awesome. Yeah, and Joe actually, as a joke, one year put four million dollars in the budget so he could go and retrieve it. <laughs> he needs to call up Bezos <laughs> or one of these billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you ought to go by the museum and get the full story on the golf ball on the moon. Yeah. But all all the stuff in there is is really cool looking. I even bought a uh Red Rider myself. Yeah, you did. And a starter kit. I was showing it off in the in the office yesterday. Well, and you you before we did our in-person thing at the Prior Center yes. Thursday night, you showed me that you had it. And by the yeah. way, thanks to everybody for coming out and watching online our first ever in-person version. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We want to do it again. I think we may do it once or twice a year and maybe even... Yeah. Take it on the road. We don't know. Someone suggested that last night, and yeah. we're interested. Maybe we could. I loved the video of Jimmy Driftwood you showed last night. Where oh, he's, yeah. Where he's playing in his field in Timbo. And then gives a little history yeah. lesson about where the land came from. And if you missed it, it, you can go to the Prior Center and watch the archive version, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, just go to the KETV section. There's a search. Just put in Driftwood, and there'll be several clips yeah. that come up. It'll have the description. You click on the description, and it takes you right to the clip. All right, we're going to do this again next week, right? Yes, I have no idea what we're going to do. All right, but you'll be here. It's been a busy week. Yes, it has. I'm and just, I'm at a loss, but the show goes on. Yes, it does. So, got to come up with something. <laughs> Thank you, Randy <laughs> Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas. Oh, could, could we close with a little nostalgia? Yeah. Let's do an, an old... Uh, Daisy commercial. All right, we'll do that. I, I will tell people that they can find out about all sorts of Arkansas history by looking for the Prior Center website in their search engine. Here we go. And I'll see you next week. It doesn't seem that long ago Mom would send me out of the house and I wasn't expected home till dinner. The boys and I would grab our Red Riders and make an adventure of each day, just hoping the sun would never go down. My love for hunting and the outdoors became tradition all those years ago. Something that great is easy to share and pass down because it never gets old. Some things have changed, but shooting that Daisy Red Rider, especially with grandkids, is more fun than ever. Go have an adventure. It all starts with a daisy. This is Ozarks at Large. Last week, we shared a conversation I had with John Jetter, the conductor and music director of the Fort Smith Symphony, about the symphony's activities the next few weeks. There was a part of our visit recorded at the Bakery District in Fort Smith that we didn't have time to broadcast last Thursday. We had briefly talked about a new CD of Florence Price's music recorded with John Jetter as conductor. Uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, record Volume 3 of uh, Florence Price's orchestral works. Uh, I did that in Reutlingen, Germany last year. And uh, this is something that's available in not only CD, but you know, mainly streamed online formats. And yeah, it's been, as you know, it's been quite a journey with uh, Florence Price. I didn't realize, you know, I didn't know this would happen, but I don't, uh, there's maybe a couple conductors who've performed her music more often, but I think I'm the only person who's done like all of her orchestral pieces. And this recording that came out is terrific. There's a lot of world premiere recordings. Uh, Songs of the Oak, which is one of the pieces on it, the big piece, uh, doing that in rehearse or in recording session, that was the first time anyone had ever played that music before, a group of live musicians. I knew I wanted to share that part of our discussion at some time, just wasn't sure when. Well, the New York Times provided the necessary nudge. Last week, the Times published a column recommending five new classical music albums to listen to right now. Alongside new collections of Renee Fleming performances and Beethoven compositions, 
is Florence Beatrice Price, Songs of the Oak, and more. Critic Seth Coulter-Walls with the New York Times writes, In the two concert overtures that kick off the set, Price's quotations of spirituals come across strongly. Walls also writes, Even more impressive is the Oak from 1943, in which, quote, John Jetter leads the players through an exquisitely gloomy opening and shattering climaxes. Walls also praises the liner notes from Douglas Shaddle, who you might recall was on our show last year, while visiting Fayetteville to conduct research about Florence Price using material in the University of Arkansas Special Collections. And the image of Florence Price on the cover of the new CD is from those materials. The new album, Florence Beatrice Price, Songs of the Oak, featuring John Jetter as conductor, available now as a CD and also online streaming. The University of Arkansas Department of Music's Black Music Symposium begins Wednesday night at 7 at Central United Methodist Church in Fayetteville with Nathaniel Gums, Director of Chapel Music at Yale University. That's one of his performances you can find at ConcertOrganist.com. He's also scheduled to deliver a lecture titled Organ Music of Black Composers. That's Thursday morning at 11 in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the U of A campus. The symposium will last through Sunday, many of the events taking place inside the Faulkner Center. And Arkansas-born singer-songwriter Iris DeMent will release a new record in February. It's called Working on a World. You may remember she played at the Fayetteville Roots Festival and on Ozarks at Large in 2013. She's also played a memorable concert at the Odd in Eureka Springs several years ago. The new album, created over the course of six years, and it features songs considering the state of the world. I got so down in Iris DeBent Tour supporting the record will start February 17th. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkin Songs. And I rode a night, tumbling, I tried the whole night long. And I rode a night, tumbling, I tried the whole night long. This morning, Mama, and I didn't know right from wrong. Bluesman Hambone Willie Newburn was born in 1899. He's said to have lived in Brownsville, Tennessee, just a few dozen miles west of the Arkansas state line. Like so many blues musicians of the first half of the 20th century, Newburn played parties, joints, and clubs in the tri-state area of Tennessee, Mississippi, and Arkansas. Hambone Willie Newburn recorded at just one known session in Atlanta, Georgia, on March 13, 1929. Most notably, Newburn recorded the earliest known version of the blues standard Rollin' and Tumblin'. 
though it was a song that was likely already a standard at the time. Newburn called the song Roll and Tumble Blues. Little detail is really known about the life of Hambone Willie Newburn, but Newburn played in, wrote about, and died in East Arkansas. In the 1920s and 1930s, he played with James Yank Rochelle and Sleepy John Estes, two giants of the early blues and ragtime style hokum music. In fact, Newburn was said to have taught Sleepy John to play guitar, without especially the background on Newburn given by Sleepy John Estes, who was born near Newburn's hometown in Ripley, Tennessee. Even less will be known about Hambo and Willie Newburn. Say you talk about your old I was one from my home. He done got with about all the good-looking women. What did he say? I'm going to leave all the misery alone. Hambone Willie Newburn apparently recorded only six tracks in total at his single known session. All three Hambone Willie Newburn 78 singles were released on OK Records of New York. Way Down in Arkansas, Rollin' Tumble Blues, She Could Toodaloo, Nobody Knows What the Good Deacon Does, Dreamy Eyed Woman Blues, and Shelby County Workhouse. The latter mentions the town of Mark Tree in northeast Poinsett County, Arkansas, in addition to Tennessee's Shelby County. Hambone Willie Newburn was said to have played the medicine show circuit, and Newburn's songs like She Could Toodaloo and Nobody Knows What the Good Deacon Does seem to reflect that tradition. I know just what I'm talking about. I was one old sister by the name of Yearn. Shame to tell your brother what that sister was doing. Shh, nobody knows what a good deacon was doing. Lord, watch the lies without. Newburn also wrote more serious lyrics in the songs Hambone Willie's Dreamy-Eyed Woman Blues and Shelby County Workhouse Blues. Said to be a hot-tempered man, Hambone Willie Newburn was reportedly beaten to death in a brawl behind bars in 1947 in Marvel, Arkansas, in Phillips County. I left old Memphis, Tennessee, on my way back to dear old mom tree. I might have become for much, baby, since jam a paper of my name. Hambone Willie Newburn's song, Rolling and Tumbling, has been a blues standard for generations, adapted by other pre-war blues artists like his guitar pupil, Sleepy John Estes, Charlie Patton, and Robert Johnson, and later covered by Muddy Waters, Elmore James, John Lee Hooker, Sonny Land Slim, and others, and by such rockers as Canned Heat, Johnny Winter, Eric Clapton, and Bob Dylan. In fact, you could say rolling and tumbling is the single aspect of the shadowy life of blues man Hambo and Willie Newburn that's not obscure. I left old Marcy, going back to Memphis, Tennessee. And I left old Marcy on my way back to Memphis, Tennessee. No sooner I got at bus station, Lord, the police arrest for me. Here in its entirety is Hambone Willie Newburn, who played in, wrote about, and died in East Arkansas with the song Way Down in Arkansas from 1929. 
Arkansas, recorded in March 1929 by Hambone Willie Newburn. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merks. Arkansas, since 1998. This is Ozarks at Large. The Razorback gymnastics team had a pretty good Friday night in Barnhill Arena. Arkansas won their dual meet against LSU, scoring a new program team record in the process. The victory came in front of more than 7,100 fans, the most to watch a meet in Barnhill in three years. This Friday, Arkansas will host Florida in Bud Walton Arena. Last season, the gym backs set their program attendance record in Bud Walton with 10,345 fans. That was against Auburn last year. And as long as we're talking about superlatives, let's mention the effort of Razorback runner Lauren Gregory. Friday at the Razorback Invitational, she clocked her part in the distance medley relay in just under four and a half minutes to help the Razorback relay team finish second in that event. Her time is the second fastest Arkansas time ever and the fourth fastest collegiate time ever. And while the Razorbacks finished second in the relay, Stanford won the race with what is, at the moment, the fastest time in the world. Then Saturday, Lauren Gregory came within five hundredths of a second of the school record in the mile, finishing in four minutes and 31.88 seconds. 
The Razorback men's basketball team will return to SEC play this week after dropping a 67-64 decision to Baylor on Saturday. And the Arkansas women's basketball team now on a four-game losing streak. That after losing to Mississippi 76-73 in overtime in Bud Walton Arena in Fayetteville yesterday. And the Arkansas swim team's regular season is finished after a win at Vanderbilt this weekend. The SEC championships are next for the swim team. Those will begin Friday, February 14th in College Station, Texas. And former Arkansas soccer goalkeeper Grace Barbara is now at the preseason camp of the National Women's Soccer League's Houston Dash. She reported to the Dash on January 28th. Camp is set to begin today. She transferred to Arkansas to play her final season after spending three seasons at Princeton. Last year, the Razorback soccer team set a program record of 11 shutouts with her in goal. Can we talk about warm weather sports? The Great American Conference will bring its postseason baseball tournament to Springdale. The GAC's four-team double elimination tournament will be at Arvest Ballpark May 11th through 13th. The conference is made up of teams from Arkansas and Oklahoma, including Arkansas Tech and Russellville. And the baseball season opens for the University of Arkansas Fort Smith Lions Friday afternoon, weather pending, against East Central University out of Ada, Oklahoma. That game will be played at Majestic Park in Hot Springs. Known for his rise to fame in the early 90s with songs like Loser and Where It's At, Beck comes to the Walmart Amp Friday, August 18th with French indie pop band Phoenix returning to Northwest Arkansas after their recent appearance at the Format Festival in Bentonville. Tickets at amptickets.com. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Weddington Woods. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Today's show produced inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellums. We're ending with music from cellist Zoe Keating. Her composition, The Last Bird, a tribute to the ivory-billed woodpecker. Stay warm, stay safe. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.